Hello and welcome to July's edition of 117. This month, we're looking back at the launch of All We Can's Emergency Relief Fund, and I'm joined by Angela Zameri-Smith, our Director of Programmes and Partnerships, to tell us more about the fund and how it links into our wider humanitarian work with our network of partners across affected communities. Plus, hear more about our harvest campaign and resources this September, which puts the spotlight on locally-led interventions and the individuals leading community transformation in Binga district of Malawi. Welcome to 117, where all things hold together. I think we're live. Well, hello um, to Angela Zamari Smith, um, our head of pro, uh, oh, sorry, our um, director of programs and partnerships um, for All We Can. Um, thank you so much for joining um, today. I totally understand it's such a busy summer period, and we're so glad to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. And uh, it's been a while since I've, I've done the one seventeen, so really looking forward to today. That's fabulous. Um, so if, if, uh, if you can and, and you're able, just um, for those uh, listening and um, those who are joining us um, on social media who haven't come across you before, um, mm-hmm. either at one of our events or online or in the many ways um, that we share what we're doing at All We Can, um, could you just introduce yourself and your role and how long you've been with All We Can? Sure. So, um, yeah, as you see, Angela Mary Smith. I'm Director of Programmes and Partnerships at All We Can. I've been around now, um, oh, eight years, uh, nearly. Uh, so I joined in um, September uh, uh, 2014. Yeah, that's right. So it's been a while. I've been I've been around for for a while, but um, no day is exactly the same. It's exciting always, and um, really privileged to to be a part of this organization and all that we stand for. Well, thank you so much. Um, I was uh, thinking just recently about uh, having joined, um, I suppose, about 14 months ago now, um, pr- probably one of the, the first big experiences of seeing the whole partner network was at our partner conference last October yes. um, for myself and, and perhaps for some of those who are joining us online as well, who followed some of that content online. Um, obviously, you had a big hand in organising that partner conference. Um, yes. And uh, I wonder if if you could um, uh, just briefly talk about the um uh, the theme of walking together in partnership and where that emerged from and, and where we're at really in our in our journey um if you can summarize all of that massive content in, in the space of maybe 30 seconds <laughs> yeah no it, it, it's um wonderful so walking together in partnership is our uh, the title of our partnership um, framework our approach and how we do partnership so it's walking together Uh, not in control, but alongside, uh, being a support, a critical friend, um, and being, um, I guess, enablers, um, you know, of our partner's mission. And in so doing, also then on our side, meeting our own vision and our mission. So it's um, the way that we we work together with our partners. So walking together really signifies all of that. 
And um, this was the second time, obviously, we had um, such a, a, a conference. And um, so this every uh, time we have it, we really want to focus on the themes for our strategy. So you'll have seen that we were looking at uh, what it is that helps organizations to be resilient, what it is that helps them then to be impactful in the work that they do so that communities can be um, resilient as well. So those are the kind of themes that we're looking at, lead issues around leadership, issues around governance, uh, issues around disaster risk reduction. Um, we looked at uh, financial sustainability for organizations because if they can be sustainable and if they can be resilient, then we know that they will continue to meet the needs of their communities well after all we can um, has left or exited as we inevitably will, even though we do commit, um, you know, quite long term, 10 to 15 years in our partnerships. That's perfect. Thank you so much. That was uh, uh, the, the most concise but also informative uh, summary of, of, of that amazing event and, and also of, of the partnership framework. So thank you so much for that. Um, so I suppose uh, sort of moving on from um, uh, uh, the, the kind of the regular partnership um, model uh, the, the, uh, of long term development that we follow um, with uh, all we can. Um, uh, our, our supporters and those who are watching online will obviously also see that we run emergency appeals occasionally, we respond um, and we're very active when it comes to um, uh, uh, either natural disasters or um, uh, emergencies relating to people displaced by war and, and refugee crises um, and also with the recent um, conflict in Ukraine as well. Um, and those who, who have been following um, perhaps on 117, perhaps um, with our blogs and content or meeting us at events, will also know that we recently launched the Emergency Relief Fund, um, which is a new project. Um, and uh, it's um, it's got a basis in, in that long-term relationship in a way um, because of how um, our programmes and partnerships team um, work with uh, local partners on the ground um, uh, who are best placed to respond to those disasters and those crises in the same way um, as they might respond um, to longer term um, development. But um, I suppose uh, I, I've got a few questions for you, really, in terms of the oh, Emergency yeah. Relief Fund. It, it's sort of myth busting. It's also just sort of getting to the bottom of what it's all about um, so that our supporters can can understand more um, more strongly what it is that they're doing when they become a regular supporter of the ERF. Um, so if you're happy, I'll just dive straight in. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Um, so, uh, so Angela, from your experience, what does it look like um, when organisations get emergency relief or, or uh, humanitarian aid wrong? Hmm. Wow. It, it, um, it's really things could go wrong at all levels, right? From the first time that maybe an international organization um, arrives in a place where an emergency or a disaster has just happened to the way that they set up, how they involve or not um, local uh, people, um, the decision um, of what and um, they're going to do to respond, who they're going to target, um, and then basically... Um, um, you know, ongoing in terms of how they then help the communities to recover and rebuild uh, towards longer term development. So really, um, 
if if an organization arrives um, at a disaster um, place and they're wanting to do some kind of assessment or sometimes don't even do an assessment, maybe speak to one or two people, don't get a full understanding of the real impact um, of the disaster, who is affected the most and just charge in and start to do on behalf and not with the people on the ground that is obviously um some you know um you know something that is definitely wrong um we're always talking about um in those kind of situations and even in long-term development but so much more in a disaster context do no harm um making sure that you know you're not making people worse off than when you found them so i think that's number one um there are um, issues around how you work with the capacity that is existing within the community. So understanding that when a disaster happens, the people who live there are actually the first responders, right? They're the ones that are going to be there from when the disaster um, happens or the um, a hazard strikes. You know, those first 24 hours before anybody else has rushed into the space, the people within would have done something um, unless they're totally um, overwhelmed. So if uh, an organization arrives and does not understand what um, existing capacity is there, sidelines them and then goes ahead to do their own thing, that is eroding capacity that is already existing within the community. And the, the, the worst thing about that is that the, the next time, God forbid, there is a, a, a similar kind of disaster, the community now have no understanding, no knowledge of what they need to be doing. So um, we always say to our partners, um, whether international partners or local partners that are um, uh, responding on our behalf, the first thing that you do when you're doing your uh, rapid needs assessment, identify the local structures that are there, identify the local leaders and work with them to do those assessments. They know their um, communities well, uh, better than anybody from the outside. They understand um, who is who, who needs the most support and you cannot ignore that existing capacity. So that's, that's something that is really um, important. Of course, um, we know that um, in this sector, as well, you know, it's so easy um, to take advantage of vulnerable people. And we've heard horrific stories about um, things like that, where, you know, um, relief aid workers, maybe even at, unbeknown to the headquarters, they're there, but they're actually taking advantage of vulnerable people, women or whatever, asking for favors in return for, um, you know, relief items and things like that. So they, um, an organization can get things wrong by not, not ensuring that they've done their due diligence in terms of who they're employing, who they're sending out, making sure that they've done their, um, you know, their checks, their DBS, etc., et making sure that they've been adequately trained around safeguarding issues. So there, there is, there is so much there that needs to be done. And then, of course, when they decide on how they're going to respond, uh, to make sure that. Um, whatever they do, whether they're rebuilding and um, they're taking into account the um, prevailing hazards. So if it's, a, it's, if it's about floods, then you want to make sure that when you're helping rebuild, you take that into account so that that does no longer um, you know, affect the community in the same way. So what could go wrong is where an organization arrives to support, help uh, um, communities to recover and disregards all the other prevailing hazards, you know. So it, it's not, um, in most communities, they might be affected by floods, but there will also be times when they'll be affected by droughts. So if you're, if you're um, 
providing in terms of recovery agricultural inputs and seeds it's very important that you know organizations understand that right so if they know that at some point there will be um limited water or rainfall or whatever what are you doing to ensure that um you know what you're giving communities is something that's actually going to support them going forward so really there are a lot of things that could go wrong and these are the things that we definitely avoid and we also ensure that our partners uh, avoid the same approach that we take to long-term development we bring that into our emergency um, uh, response as well and always think about how we can build back better and how we can be able to help um, communities to um, to be more resilient going forward after a disaster yeah I, I thank you so much for that uh, that's that's going to be something that I think will be reassuring and, and also quite interesting, I think, to our supporters, because um, I, I think when, when, when people have really uh, bought in and really understand our, our partnership model, um, when they see emergency response, I suppose the tendency is to assume that that feels different um, or, or that it, it takes a different form or that it's a little bit more knee jerk and a little bit more reactive uh, or reactionary, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really kind of reassuring to hear that we have that awareness that that, th- oh, that these are the issues of that knee-jerk response and, and that it was absolutely. really interesting actually in the in the comms team we were looking at um uh Danby Samoyo's book Dead Aid um we were yeah. having a little discussion around it um and and one of the kind of um uh quite near the beginning of the book one of the um anecdotes that that she gives um about when kind of aid goes wrong is is uh, an example of I think it was I think it was textiles, blankets um, being delivered um, en masse to uh, to uh, um, in, in response as part of the response to uh, um, a, a displacement. And um, as a result, a load of local producers were almost sort of put out of business because yeah. they were textile producers, and and you know now there was this this market that was flooded with um, mm-hmm. uh, with the resource. So all of a sudden, yeah, yeah and, and it's fascinating to see that. And and I think from from the perspective of of emergency response, you think how could it possibly be a bad thing to do these things and to yeah. to, uh, um, to put these kind of responses together on a really mm-hmm. huge scale? But actually, we we need that local understanding to um, uh, absolutely, and, and that applies to so many different things, Alex. So um, the kind of food that is being provided, you know, is that the kind of food that people you know normally eat? Is that what they would really appreciate? You know, um, so it, it's understandable in a way that organizations, they sort of put themselves in people's shoes and think, oh, if this, this had happened to me, what would I have wanted? But actually understanding that they're different contexts, people uh, live very differently from us. And they, you know, they um, maybe the things that they would want is not necessarily what we think. And so the rapid needs assessment, um, engaging with communities is to really understand what the critical needs are. And if there was support, what type of support would be the most useful? Because, you know, people obviously, they, they, they know, they know their context, they know, you know, their ways of life, their culture. And it's very, very important to understand all of those things. Um, and in terms of um, what you were saying around the knee-jerk um, reaction, well, absolutely not. You know, it's something that we've really thought through every single stage. Um, we have very clear procedures. We have very clear um, strategy for how we want to, uh, to, to respond to emergencies.
I suppose this sort of relates to it um, uh, in some um, scenarios where where, where we uh, um, start an emergency appeal or, or now respond through the emergency relief fund. We, we may already have partners in, in the country yeah. um, or in the local area of that country, but um, obviously no two situations are the same. And I wonder what it is that um, all we can, what the programmes and partnerships team um are looking for when uh, when we don't have an emergency response partner in the area, but but we want to um, just to set up a, a emergency response. Sure. So um, what we do is that um, obviously where we have local partners, they would be the ones that we work through. Um, we would have already done um, a lot of planning with those partners, would have done um, training with those partners so that they understand the kind of standards that we um, adhere to as an organization. Um, but there are also international specialist organizations that sometimes we, we have to go through because, you know, it's a fragile state or, um, as you said, we don't have any local partner that, um, in, in that particular region or area. And um, so we also have a, quite a robust process of identifying partners um, in terms of, you know, organizations with similar values to ourselves, um, organizations that... Um, uh, adhere to global standards, international standards like sphere um, and humanitarian principles um, or signed up to the humanitarian charter, which looks at um, you know, people's right to a life with, uh, with dignity, right to humanitarian assistance, protection and security. So those are the things that we, we're looking for. And what we have done is also pre-vet those um, partners. So we, we've taken time before an emergency happens to pre-approve um, um, some uh, partners, um, making sure that we've gone through uh, to understand what their uh, response uh, procedures are, what their values are, what their strategies are for, for response. And when we see that there's an alignment there, we those are the ones that would be our go-to um, if there is an emergency where we don't have local partners. But um, you will find that the ones that we have identified, whatever the case, you know, some of the things that I was mentioning earlier on, um, those things they already think about. So when they land, and they're already looking at what is the capacity on the ground. They're already looking at local um, structures. They're already looking at, at working with and through local leaders. So um, that's really what it is. It's, it's making sure that there's a congruence in our values so that we can be able to work together, um, you know, in a way that we know that um, or we can and our supporters, you know, would expect us to, to, to respond. That's that's really that's really interesting. And so so really, all we can has high standards um, is is the sort of short answer to that in terms of no, absolutely. Because remember, it, you know, it is about people, and we are all about putting people in the driving seat. So just because they, um, you know, people are a victim of whether it's natural man made disaster, doesn't change that. It doesn't change the fact that they want to be able to have a say in in the way that they 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 they're being supported. Um, and knowing that, that's, you know, once that, that period has passed, that they will then have to carry on with their lives. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. That's brilliant. It, it's having that agency and, and that, um, uh, that sense of self-determination in the future as well, I suppose, which is, yes. yeah, yes. that's really great to hear. This year, Harvest forms part of our ongoing Communities in the Driving Seat campaign, 
where we have been highlighting how All We Can's partner in Malawi, Eagles, has been pioneering a fresh approach to development. But don't worry, if you haven't engaged with All We Can yet in 2023, this is still the perfect time to jump in. The service will be focusing on how we trust God with the resources we have, and why sometimes we need to flip our perspective to enable a more fruitful harvest. As with all our resources, our harvest offering aims to inspire and mobilise your church for its ministry and mission locally, with stories from international contexts. To find out more about our resources this year, visit www.allwecan.org.uk forward slash resources and click on harvest. Well, uh, moving straight on to my next question, really, and I suppose this this may have been covered a little bit in, in what we talked about at the beginning, but um, I suppose uh, answer on a postcard or kind of um, uh, the short version um, uh, or the kind of condensed version of your thoughts on um, uh, why you think it is that long-term development and humanitarian aid are linked together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, why is so, it not you know separate agents oh sorry yeah. <laughs> well well I, I think it's it's a little bit um like what i was saying before that when we respond we need to realize that these are people who are going to then continue to live in that area you know in the long term so um making sure that we respond in a way that builds capacity for them um as they continue beyond that moment of disaster is very very important um, there is a continuum, obviously, from the immediate uh, response, which is really about saving lives, providing shelter, providing food and clean water, and you know just making sure that people have the basic needs of life to be able to survive um, and save lives. Um, you know, once that phase um, passes, then you're very quickly looking at recovery. So you know, have people lost their homes? Um, have people um, lost maybe crops in the field? You what is it that people have lost that they need to be re, um, restored um, so that they can get back to um, a, a normal way of living? Um, and so the way that we support recovery also has a, a bearing on how sustainable um, the, the ongoing development is going to be. So, so from emergency to recovery, long-term development and if you get any of those wrong it does then affect the sustainability um, in your development efforts in the way that you support um, communities to um, to be resilient and to live their lives um, after the disaster so um, it's it's very very important on our side for example um, we have had programs uh, and some of our supporters may have heard about the build back better initiative. So um, communities in Malawi that lost their homes as a result of Cyclone Idai, you know, we had to really think about how can they rebuild the homes that they they lost and prov- uh, support them to get homes that were going to withstand future cyclones so that they're not, um, you know, stuck on this cycle of, you know, rebuild, disaster ha- happens, those development gains are lost, uh, you know, and it's just, it's just like they're chasing their tail. They never get out um, to actually start building their lives and, and seeing their lives progress. So building back better is always the thing that we look for. Um, if the issue is that, you know, they've lost 
crops and they need to re you know replant and if the issue has been um, that the place has got drought then you want to get drought resistant seeds um, so you know if the issue is that they you know it's flooding that there's a problem when you reinstating water points you're making sure that you know they're on a on a platform so that next time there's floods people still have access to clean water it's all of that kind of thinking and actually it's what we call disaster risk reduction so how do we reduce the risk of future disasters by understanding the vulnerabilities that people have and by responding to emergencies and supporting with recovery with all of those things in mind so in a way i suppose you could describe it as kind of a spectrum going from disaster response to yeah. to long-term development maybe with disaster risk reduction kind of a, a part of that gradient all, all the way through yeah all the way through you can take a, a, a disaster risk reduction approach in your response in your emergency response i think some people find that difficult to understand but when we're talking about um doing it in a way that does not erode capacity and actually builds capacity for future response to disasters that is disaster risk reduction because you're saying actually if this was to happen again we won't be here but communities and community leaders will be those first responders so they will know what to do in terms of you know evacuating people um and Understanding who is the most um, in need. Maybe they would have already thought about stockpiling in, in advance. Um, people already know where they're going to um, evacuate to if they have to evacuate. So they've already, in your response, you're sort of building all of those things in, in building capacity of of those community members so that, you know, they, they can be able to be, you know, those effective first um, responders in future. Um so it is. It is really throughout that process. You're 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 using that lens of how we can reduce the risk of disasters because, we you know, hazards will happen. I mean, floods will happen. Cyclones will happen. Um, you know, you you'll have um, moments of drought. So those things will happen, but they don't necessarily have to lead to disaster if people are you know are well prepared. If they, they you know they they have homes that are built in a particular way. If they're not you know just uh, relying on rain fed rain fed agriculture. So there are a lot of different things that you can do so that when those hazards hit, people are not vulnerable and it does not necessarily. Um, um, you know, lead to disaster. We see that in some um, wealthy countries like Japan, where they have earthquakes, but they don't necessarily always lead to disaster because the way that their the buildings uh, are designed and built is such that they're able to sway, right? So it's thinking about, you know, those natural phenomena and how can we, um, you know, think about making sure that we are strong enough to withstand those in, in future. It's the same kind of principle. Yeah, I, I think that's a really helpful um, uh, principle to outline, really, as, especially um, when we, we kind of tackle that question of of what it is that makes emergency response, um, uh, I suppose, seem so far apart from from long term um, development work. And, and and I suppose the answer is that it's it's not. It's a it's a gradient. It's a relationship. It's interconnected. And if it's done right, it's about that mm. long term um uh, putting people in in the driving seat and giving them agency yeah. to be um to be the, the actors and, and the leaders in, in response um that's that's really helpful i'm sure a lot of people will really benefit from from having that um kind of uh that structure um and, and that understanding so thank you for that um i have one more question for you and it's a really simple one um 
I thought about giving you an elevator pitch, but um, but that would have been uh, uh, a little bit, I, th- I think, a little bit of a challenge because it is such a big um, part of our work and, it, and it's so multifaceted. So uh, I just thought I'd, uh, I'd uh, I won't set a timer or anything, but um, I'd ask you to sort of just briefly um, uh, sort of outline and lay out um, why it is that the Emergency Relief Fund, which was launched this year, um, at the ERF, for those who like to use acronyms. Um, why yeah. is it good news? Why is it, uh, um, you know, something that should be proclaimed from the rooftops uh, with a wow. win? It, it's, for me, really exciting because we know that when a disaster hits, um, it's important that organisations like ourselves are able to respond as quickly as possible. So, yes, we might not be there, you know, in the first four hours, um, you know, or eight hours or whatever the case might be. But if we have existing local partners, the funding that we have could actually get there really, really quickly. And if the partner is um, already trained, they already understand the context, it means that very soon, you know, very quickly, they can start to actually provide um, support, help with evacuating people, for example, um, help with search and rescue, help with, um, you know, making sure that people have got all the basic needs of life. Um, so actually having money that is there already will help us to be able to respond really, really, really quickly. Um, it might also be that um, because there is uh, funding available, we can be able to add additional capacity. We can be able to send, um, you know, our humanitarian um, assistance um, colleagues to actually go and, and add capacity to our partners and add capacity to the communities to do those rapid needs assessment, to really get a clear understanding of what, of what the needs are. Um, rather than, you know, having to wait until we've launched an appeal and then, you know, we start to receive the funds. Sometimes, sorry, that can actually add to delays. It could be a week, it could be two weeks, um, potentially, depending on how quickly people start to to respond. And it it is that, um, you know, we're very grateful. We have partners and local uh, supporters who are very quick on the mark, you know, once that appeal goes out. But if there isn't adequate money that has come in, you know, early on, then we're always having to wait until we have, you know, adequate amounts to be able to send that can actually make a um, a significant difference. So I'm really excited about having an ERF, um, the Emergency Relief Fund, um, because it will definitely add value to the work that we already do in um uh, emergency response and just really making sure that we can uh, respond in a timely manner, um, you know, making sure that our partners on the ground are able to, you know, respond uh, really quickly as soon as they possibly can once a, a disaster has hit. Well, that's that's so good. So we're, we're talking about combating delays, acting quickly um, in a timely way, ensuring that long-term resilience and and kind of almost being being able to be in the position of kind of blurring the lines between the DL, DRR and that long-term stuff um, yes. and as the immediate response. Um, that's that's really amazing to um, to hear and, and so inspiring as well to uh, to know that this is something that's underway and it's a success. We've got um, regular supporters already of the Emergency Relief Fund alongside those who support us in our core um, development work. 
Um, and that's something that our supporters can do. They can they can opt to be supporters of um, the emergency relief fund um, yeah. in isolation yeah. or, or on top of what they're already supporting. So that's really brilliant to hear. I, I'm just really thankful and really grateful to our supporters. And every time that I have an opportunity to speak, um, and I've said it in the past when I've joined a 117 that we really cannot do what we do without our supporters. You know, we can have the best of intentions. We can have all of the ideas about what makes you know, development sustainable or how we can um, respond to emergencies in the best way possible. But if we don't have the support from, you know, the support, the financial support, the prayers, um, then, you know, we, we're, we're hampered and we're not actually able to fulfill that vision that we have. So I think for me, it's just to take this opportunity to say thank you to those um, supporters who are already, you know, um, helping us with this. Um, and just to make a, an additional appeal to those who are have been on the fence, not sure, you know, whether this is helpful or needed or, or whatever to say, yes, this is absolutely needed. Because, you know, when an emergency happens, every minute, every hour that passes, you know, could be the difference between life and death. And so, you know, being ready to respond quickly is so critical. That's, that's excellent. Um, thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, um, I should say uh, while you're still here, because you've experienced um, the uh, tandem bike as well, um, we'll be at some events this summer. Uh, so we'll be at, at Lionheart Festival um, in mid-July and we'll also be at All We, uh, at all we Can. We'll be All We Can. Um, we'll be at Greenbell Festival with, um, with the Methodist Church at Open Anchor. And we should have our tandem bike with us on both occasions. You've been on oh, the tandem amazing. bike. I love the tandem bike. You're one of the original tandem bike riders. <laughs> um, and anyone who wants to get a really, uh, really physical and, and experiential understanding of our partnership model, um, we, we can uh, we can heartily recommend getting on that tandem bike. What is it like to be, be in, in the back seat driving driving the tandem bike with someone else? What does it feel like? Um, I think, you know, it, it makes you understand that um, the person who is um, in the front has better sight um, of what is needed, where they need to go, what they need to avoid, um, you know, and you're there just to add power and um, add support to their leadership. And that's exactly the way that we do partnership. You know, we understand that our partners, our community, sorry, they're the ones that are there. They have greater sight of their own communities, their own challenges, their own solutions. And actually they're the ones that are in the forefront of already trying to find those solutions. And what we are there to do and what our partners are there to do is to add capacity and support. You know, um, so we are the ones on the um, on the back seat adding, you know, that power that they need. But actually, they are the ones that are navigating. They're the ones that know that we need to go this way or that way. This is what we need to avoid all the pitfalls that we need to avoid. And actually, this is the direction that we want to take. So it's it's really interesting. Um, and it is about giving our power. Right. When you decide to get on a tandem bike and you decide you're going to be you know, on that, you know, in the back seat, not in the front, already, you know, that you're giving up, you know, your power. Um, in that case, you're putting that trust in the people who are at the front. And, you know, we are very much about um, shifting power to those people who have the lived experience, the ones that are living their life every day. We, um, we're not the ones that are in control. They are the ones that are in control. Um, 
So, you know, it, it's all a part of um, helping supporters understand what we mean by decolonized aid, what we mean by locally led development, and what we mean by shifting power to those people who, um, you know, live those um, lives every day. And def definitely they have thought about what kind of support they would need, what direction they need to, to, to get to much better than we ever could, because we, we're from a different context, maybe a different culture, um, and don't quite understand um, the, the, the local, the contextual issues that they have to deal with. So, yeah, if you are in any one of those places and you see a tandem bike, please do uh, get involved. Sit in the back, sit in the front, just to get an understanding and a feel of the power that you, you, know, you, you have when you are sitting in the front. And that is what we want for our communities. And then, you know, if you have an opportunity to sit behind, understand the role that we now play as, um, you know, as enablers, facilitators, catalysts, whatever word we want to use to support those that are actually in, in in the front and you know helping to direct the way that um, they want they want to get to so yeah absolutely uh, would encourage uh, supporters to to take part oh well thank you so much angela and to our lovely listeners um, anyone who wants to come and experience what it's like to be um on the back seat and 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 to be actively um, uh, following someone who's in that driving seat, then do come along to those summer events um, and, and come and see us. We'll be very glad to see you, um, especially if it's as sunny and hot as I think it's going to be on the Isle of Wight in mid-July. So oh, <laughs> I'm quite excited for that. I won't lie. I've got my SPF 50. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Angela. I really appreciate, um, uh, and we really appreciate, uh, we really appreciate you. We really appreciate everything that you do um, in the programmes and partnerships team and in the wider organisation as well. And um, yeah, just on behalf of, of our supporters who are listening um, and those who are watching back and uh, of, of all of the team here, uh, thank you for um, your leadership and your wisdom and um, your contribution to this kind of ongoing journey of discovering what it is to be walking together in partnership and um, and to discover together um, how, how this all works. Um, and it's it's a, a journey that we will continue to, to be on, but... Um, uh, you know, we hope and we pray that we're going in the right direction um, and that, um, that this this truth is being made known. So thank you so much um, thank again. You so and, much. Uh, I really yeah, appreciate it. It's a pleasure and a privilege. So thank you, Alex. And thank you for inviting me today. Thank you.